And here's what we're going to do today, guys. We are going to take the next three weeks, and we're going to look at the last 12 hours of Christ's life. And uh, this is going to be a little different. For those of you that are part of this situation for a while, um, we're going to dive deep. We're going to look at, basically take the four Gospels, I don't know where you're at in your spiritual walk, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are accounts of Jesus' life, and witness accounts of Jesus' life, and called the Gospels, because they talk about the good news of Jesus. And we put those four Gospels together, and we, we see how they line up, and it gives us a full picture of what happened in the last 12 hours of Christ's life. We know that the most of the Christianity is about redemption, about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, but sometimes we lose the meaning and the depth and the significance of that. And so what we're going to do these next few weeks is we're going to journey with Christ to the cross, we're going to look at the impact uh, that happened in his life and how it relates to ours, okay? And so here's what we're going to pick up this morning. Um, we're not going to have time to go into the Lord's Supper, and I know if you've been a part of church in like the Southern Catholic or otherwise, it's going to be a communion, you're going to a little wafer, a little cup, we call that the Last Supper. That's not what the disciples celebrated together. It was actually a piece of a feast that was a very uh, long and drawn out and meaningful and symbolic uh, spiritual exercise that had four different cups of wine and bread and, and different herbs and, and food and, and very, you know, it's a multi-course meal that they celebrated together. That, and it's what Jesus taught that he was that, that sacrifice for the sin of the world that would redeem people from here. So he celebrates the thing next Sunday with his disciples at 7 p.m. And then that goes on for a few hours, and then they transition out of that, and Jesus is entering into the garden around 11 o'clock at night. Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane. And so from about 11 p.m. until 1 a.m., Jesus and his disciples are in this garden that's in between the temple and the Mount of Olives where Jesus would go and pray off and so in the garden, Jesus experiences this intense emotional and physical agony. And what happens is that he begins to feel the weight of carrying the sin of the world. He experiences the temptation that any human would experience. You know, he knows as God what he's about to endure, the pain and suffering on the cross, and he begins to raise his blood pressure and everything else that goes along with it. The scripture teaches us that um, they put him to a place called Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane simply means oil press, a place of tension. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and his closest three friends, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. This is from the book of Mark, chapter 14. And here's what I want you to say. I'm going to call out some of these words here because even in the video that we just watched, it doesn't quite capture the, the extent of what's going on here. You know, when you look at the Greek language, it is very descriptive and very powerful. And when it talks about being greatly distressed, it's the idea to be thrown into terror. And so Christ is looking at the events that are about to happen through the crucifixion, and he's feeling the weight and the fear and the pressure of that, knowing the physical torment that he's about to go through. And so he has this terror that's going on where it says that he's troubled, the idea of great anguish, distress, and depression. And he says, to the point that my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. 
And what you need to understand is that this phrase, my soul is very powerful, even to the point of death, isn't a, a figurative speech. He's not just saying, you know, I feel like I could die. What he's also saying is, is that something is happening within him totally that's bringing him to the point of death. And we see this later on in a different passage, what is actually going on here. And it says that Jesus was facing such anguish that there appeared in, uh, to him an angel from heaven. So God the Father sent an angel to come down and strengthen him because of the amount of pressure he was under. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so what's being described here is this is incredible pressure. We know that he prayed three times. Uh, about this very thing, he comes back and finds the disciples sleeping each and every one of those times. And so for a couple of hours, Jesus is feeling this immense and powerful emotional pressure that's going on in, internally that's just wearing him out. And it creates what is called a, a syndrome called hematidrosis. Okay, so Louisiana State University, you know, this is also in uh, the National Library of Medicine, but it's a condition where under extreme pressure and stress, the capillaries swell and burst, allowing blood to seep through the sweat glands. And so what happens is that your heart rate is so elevated, the stress level is so high, there's so much uh, blood pressure that the capillaries that are at the end of your vessel burst. And, and, and it creates all kinds of, of reactions mentally and physically. It creates intense pain. It makes your skin extremely sensitive to the touch. And so you have Christ who is praying, who is under this pressure, who is sweating drops of blood. His heart is at a point of acute limit. And he has all of this physical and emotional pressure. And it says that he was falling to the ground praying. And when we hear that, it's not just a one falling to the ground and his knee in the, in the position with his face to the ground like we see in the video. It was more a repeated falling. It's used in the present continual sense. And so you have Christ who is in this incredible pressure emotionally and physically, this a deep sorrow and physical pain who is writhing on the ground, wrestling with his will versus the Father's will over the price that he will pay for redemption. What's happening here is that Christ is literally in the fetal position on the ground, praying, Father, if there's any other way for this type of task, would you do it? Not my will, but your will. See, when we look at Christ, I think we have a hard time wrapping our heads around the severity. And I also think that we seriously underestimate the depth of love and strength that we see in Christ. So right off the bat, this is where Jesus starts off his encouragement for the next 12 months. His disciples, as he waits a month, they ask them to pray with him, to pray for themselves that they wouldn't fall into temptation, to see the spiritual warfare of this moment. They would see their Jesus sweating drops of blood in a great pain and anguish. And yet, they still smile. 
to see that Jesus is praying to all the Father or Jesus God is approached the sovereign God who's from all things in creation, all authority. And you call out this that all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, what's happening here is that Jesus is between me, using the analogy of the Lord's Supper, the four cups of the Lord's Supper. He is between the third and the fourth cup, the cup of judgment, which no one drank. Because nothing wants to drink God's judgment. That cup symbolizes that God has poured out his wrath on all unrepentant people. And then the fourth cup was a cup of redemption. That's the one that we take with our Christian circles that remind us of God's loving and redemptive nature and everything that He sacrificed to satisfy judgment, to provide grace and mercy and love and renewal. See, this is God's heart. See, there's intense anger over sin. See, we like to call it mistakes, we like to wash it down a little bit to make it a little easier to live with. But the truth is, sin is rebellion against God and selfishness towards others. And it stands up in subtle and profound ways in our lives. And it's easy to dismiss God, to marginalize God, to rebel against what he has. And it creates great pain in the world. And God has anger over what, not just what we've done wrong, but the effect that it has within us. See, God created us to know Him, to love Him, to follow Him, to never be different from Him, to never question Him about Him, to always be sure of who He is. To never have hardship in this life that we have because of sin, because of rebellion, because of our own version of right and wrong. And God is bringing his wrath against all of the destruction that it does to us and people around us to offer us redemption and renewal. So how does somebody fix a relationship that they're responsible for breaking? What can you do to ever make it up to a person? You can't. You're solely dependent on that person offering you what you don't deserve and what you can't acquire for yourself. And that's what Jesus is wrestling with. So where are you in all this? The disciples were asleep. How is it so easy for us to look and wait against him? When we look at the Bible, we see that Jesus went through the pressure that caused him. Maybe we could let him kill that weight and set us free so that we don't have to kill it ourselves. So that's 11 to 1 a.m. 1 a.m., things go from bad to worse. Jesus is betrayed, he's arrested, and he's abandoned. He gets up home, he's making a decision not to do his will, but to redeem humanity, to stand in between God's judgment and about for us to redemption. And he's betrayed in a deep and humiliating way by one of his closest friends, Judas. Now, Judas also was betraying him. He knew the place where Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And so they needed someone inside who knew where Jesus was hiding as the, the Romans and the, the scribes and the Pharisees came to arrest Jesus. Jesus then, having received the Roman cohort, 
and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so what you need to understand here is that this wasn't just a small party that came get 12 guys. When you talk about a Roman cohort, that is 600 soldiers, armed soldiers. 600 armed soldiers. Plus, they brought officers of the temple, chief priests, and Pharisees. We also see that there were some teachers and uh, scribes and elders over there. So there's anywhere from 800 to nearly 1,000 men that come to arrest Jesus. That is serious overkill. And so they were led by a man who betrayed Jesus, Judas himself, who offered up his services to turn Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver, which was barely enough to buy a new outfit. And so this is how things begin to go down. And he goes, Then he who is betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whoever I says, he is the one that sees him. Immediately Jesus, uh, Jesus went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And so not just was this betrayal something where an inside friend turned in, it was done with a great expression of deep friendship, right? To be close enough to somebody for that person to be able to kiss you on the cheek was a term of endearment, an expression of endearment in that time and in that culture. And it meant that you were accepted and loved by that person. And so that very acceptance and love that Jesus offered to Jesus, Jesus would pay that back with a two-edged sword. And we can relate to that because we know there are times where we want to talk close to God and then there are times where we don't. And so we can relate to the torn emotions that are going on here. And we can imagine what's going on in the heart and mind of Christ. And so Jesus goes and he says, but Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the first man of the king? It's, like, it's not enough that you're betraying me that you would do this in a way that you would offer friendship. You find Jesus in a place where he spent a lot of time with his disciples. The men of all of it were, were, were Jesus for a lot of time. So, in the time that Jesus got away with his disciples, the time that he taught them exclusively, where the world was full of crowds, this is where they got to see Jesus throughout his heart and body, it's where more likely they learned to pray. And it's in the very place where Jesus offered the most endearing parts of him. And he finds himself with his disciples in mixed company, being torn between abandonment and betrayal. We can see as everything goes down, the disciples start fleeing. But in the midst of all this, Jesus does his deity. See, this is what I want you to say is that Jesus isn't a helpless victim. He's got it in the flesh, and he is very much in control of what's going on. So you begin to see the determination. So Jesus, knowing all these things, he looks out this huge crowd, at least 600 men plus, and he says, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. He took the initiative. He stepped into it, and he said to them, Who do you think? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Jesus also was, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. And so here's what I want you to understand. The, the phrase, I am he, wasn't just saying, hey, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And then all of a sudden, all the Jewish people fell. The Jewish people had already written Jesus off as the Messiah. They could have cared less. But when he turned and said, I am he, he's referring back to Exodus, right? When Moses said, 
you know, to God, it's like, hey, you know, what do I tell these people if I tell them this message and they ask, who are you to give this message? They say that the all Aaron gave it to them. And, and the reason that that was so powerful is that the Jewish people did not feel like they could speak the name of God. The word Yahweh that we use to describe the, the, the complete character and attributes of God, they never used that. They wouldn't even write the full word out. They would leave letters out of it just because they didn't feel holy enough to even speak that name. And so when Jesus turns around and he says, I am he, he's saying, I'm Yahweh. I am the I am the I am. The one that Moses talked about, the one that redeemed Israel, the God who was of the Passover, who was looking to redeem humanity. And when he said that, the Jewish people know exactly what he's saying, and they fall back to the ground out of fear. And so you can imagine about 100 to 200 people falling back out of fear. 600 Roman soldiers did the same for battle, pulling their swords out in all chaos, breaking loose in that moment. And that's exactly what's going on. And Jesus is standing in the middle of it, calm and in control. And a certain one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So we learn from other passages that the person that cut off the ear was Peter. Right? And so Peter's that impulsive disciple, the one who's making bold promises like Jesus, I'm in this, I'm going to do this, I'm going after you, man. You're not going to face this thing alone. And he draws the sword. They have two swords among them. Okay? To save you the courage, two swords and their small swords. Guys, they're like 18 inch legs and they're big swords. Two swords, and he's going to take out 800,000 guys, right? And he's going to do it, he's going to do it with swords, and he's going to get the news, right? And so the guy that was lucky recipient of losing his ear was Memphis. And so Jesus gets in the middle of all this chaos, people falling down, swords going out, fighting, beginning, and Jesus is a and he goes over to the enemy that is about to arrest him, that is about to beat him, is about to spit on his face, is about to, to, to falsely accuse him and condemn him to die and send him to the Roman courts for crucifixion. He reaches for first and does the unthinkable. He hears the Lord. This is the power of God's love and redemption for our people. This is why we should not be afraid to claim that we are saved. To let the full weight of that word rest on us because it is a condemned word. And to realize that even in that state, even when we're an enemy, God bears those disasters to us. Then we find it for us. What you need to have confidence in is that God stepped into that conversation. God is stepping into this every moment. He got up and said, not my will, but the Father's will. I'm going to redeem humanity. I will take the punishment of judgment, and I am coming after you, relentlessly pursuing you to redeem you. What do you want to This is the blood of a new Father that we see in flesh to the person of Jesus. To God and his people, we're left with the wisdom and comfort that he's stepping away. And we'll reach out to his greatest enemy, his greatest enemy, which he will do his friend. So, this is something that we're interested in all 
And when you say, question those who have heard what I've spoke to them, behold, these know what I've said. So what he's basically saying is, who is going to bring a charge against you? You're accusing me of something, you don't have anyone here to bring a charge against you. And then he said this, one of the authors, the officers standing by, gave Jesus a blow saying, Is this the way that you answer the whole thing? And Jesus answered him. If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of this wrong, but if rightly, why do you start? He said, He's already accused and seen as guilty, and there's no charge and no witnesses against him. So that's his first trial. His second trial, he goes before the Sanhedrin, which is in front of Caiaphas and the 70 other men that make up. The, the begging uh, arm of the religious people. And they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and gathered together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, running to the courtyard of the high priest. And so Jesus was right there in the courtyard, seeing and hearing what's going on. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself by his fire. And then the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding him, for many were giving false testimony against him, and yet their testimony was not consistent. So imagine this trial. You're standing there in front of the very people that can condemn you and judge you according to God's law. You're sitting there, you're in front of all these people, and they don't even have a charge against you. They're trying to make it up in the room. Right? They're trying to put their story together while you're standing so they ultimately come up with two false charges against Jesus, and that's defaming the temple and blasphemy. It's like, hey, you said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in the third day. He's talking about the resurrection, the start of Jonah, if you will. And then he talked about blasphemy, where he said, I am God in the flesh. Claim to be the Messiah. And so those are the two charges that they bring against him, which are all worthy of the, the death penalty. And when they, when they bring these two charges in Jesus' midst to being the Messiah, they tear their clothes, which is a sign of great disgust. And the high priest said, what further, uh, you know, need do you have for witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some began to spit at him, they blindfolded him, and to beat him with their fist, and they say to him, prophesy. And the officer who received him was slashed in the face. So here's what you need to understand, is that they start going to town on Jesus, and we see in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, that they were so violent that Jesus' beard was pulled from his face. This is the level of disgust that the religious leaders had for the Messiah who healed, who loved, who taught grace and mercy. And we're just calling the three. Jesus is the first day even the second time. So after they're done beating in this morning, <clears throat> it's morning when you can actually have a child and it's just a phenomenon. And then the morning will come all the two priests and the elders of the people to come and give Jesus the food and the And they bind him, they bind the way, and they really are not going to come to the so, basically what happens at this point is the trial essentially is to condemn the day. And here's what's interesting. Their law said that Jesus could be stoned. Scripture teaches us that Jesus would receive two punishments that didn't exist at the time they were prophesying. The first one was flogging, the second one was crucifixion. A thousand years before any of those two forms of punishment existed, 
because it teaches us just what happens in this life. God is walking into this for the dying of my people. But you know, in all of this pain and suffering and injustice, all of these other things is that Peter denied his association with Jesus. So Peter followed him in a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting there with the officer and woman and stuff with a fire. He could hear the accusations, he could see the, the violence and the, and the beating and having the beard pulled from his face. And he remembered back that promise that he made to Jesus that he would go to death, you know, to Jesus, that he wouldn't let him face this alone. And, and Jesus said, Listen, Peter, you don't understand that Satan is also going to tempt you, and you need to know that you're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up. And I want you to know that when you turn, he will use you to encourage the believers in faith. And Peter didn't believe that. But as we know, Peter denied Jesus three times, the third time. Uh, he did it with cursing, and so that echoes through the whole courtyard, and this is what happened. And immediately, while he was still speaking to the top crow, and the Lord turned, and he looked at Peter. Think of that. He said it with his earsight and eyesight of Jesus. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, and as he was turning before the top crow, today he was remembered three times. And he went and went. See how you view the first to abandon our promises in the relationship with Jesus. We lost it all now. Here's a moment to understand. There is truth. See, what we see in the denial of Peter is that no human has within them the ability no one has the integrity or the strength to endure what Jesus endured for the weight of their own sin. Jesus is the only mediator between God's wrath and the redemption that we so desperately feel and try to manufacture in our relationship. See, I think the lesson that Peter learned is that God is not asking for us to base our relationship on Him by our own determination and effort. We need to base our relationship with Him based on Jesus' determination and passion. Because that's what we see. Up to this point, no flogging, no crucifixion. Jesus relentlessly pursuing. Jesus relentlessly loving his enemy. Jesus instantly reaching out to his closest friends who have abandoned his dying friend. Christianity isn't about what we do for God, but it's about what God has done for us. And the basis of our faith and repentance is in our effort to follow him, but our decision to make him alive.